Maybe you've heard of Slack, but what is it? Slack is your new HQ. One place for everyone at your company to find answers, share updates, and stay caught up. Slack, where work happens. Get started at slack.com. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer America. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, teach you, put it in context. Call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. No other stock in this market has more pin action than Apple, except for maybe J.P. Morgan or American Express or Honeywell, or Union Pacific. That's right. We're in a moment where there are more pluses than minuses, and it's all because the stocks generating positive pin action in this earnings season are a lot more powerful than the stocks generating negative pin action. No wonder the averages rallied today. Dow advancing 57 points. That's be uh, gaining 0.69%. NASDAQ jumping an incredibly impressive 0.91%. Sure, there are still plenty of downbeat stories out there. The economy is slowing Chinese, uh, whatever, averages, call them everyone. The farce hit is Brexit, the tragic 737 MAX plane crashes, where we are now learning Boeing may have known about the plane's flaws ahead of time. The litigation that's pummeling the pharmaceutical industry and the overhang from this year's flood of new IPOs, many of which turned out to be gigantic losers. I'm going to flesh out those ones later. But what matters most right now is the action in individual stocks. See, individual stocks, they have no ideology. They won't mislead you. They're not bent, as the cops would say in Line of Duty. Fabulous British detective show. Why don't we start with Apple? I mean, like, you know how much I like to start with Apple. Apple's a stock that's breaking out to new all-time highs. And it's thanks to the incredible popularity of the iPhone 11, which is selling much better than Wall Street expected because it turned out to have this tremendous longer battery and the amazing camera, perfect for Instagram. At the same time, CEO Tim Cook has been able to navigate his way through the trade war much better than almost anybody else I know. He's spending time with the leadership of both countries, with Trump, with Xi. Get this. I think this is perfect about who he really is. He gave the commencement address at Tulane, where my daughter went, and at Stanford this year. But he also just got joined last week the board of the prestigious Tsinghua University of Economics and Management in Beijing. Last week, Cook spoke to China's state administration for market regulation. According to Reuters, he talked about expanding investment in the People's Republic, consumer rights protection, and corporate responsibility. In other words, Cook's not waiting for the trade talks to be resolved. He's not on the sidelines. He's on the front lines. The front lines of the trade war, trying to calm things down. So far, it's working, at least for Apple and its shareholders, who were awarded with a 1.73% increase, $4.10 gain. Guys, this is a trillion-dollar company. It's not supposed to be able to go up $4.10 for heaven's sakes. Now, when Apple's on fire, it has a lot of semiconductor pin action. Oh, let's see. Cirrus Logic, Texas Instruments. How about Broadcom? Skyworks Solutions, Micron. A rally in these stocks can trigger a dramatic move in the whole NASDAQ. 
It's a mammoth breakout that silences the macro junkies who blather on endlessly about the Fed, the fading inverted yield curve, where a big economic slowdown is pretty hard to find if you're examining most domestically oriented companies. Hey, speaking of domestic operators, how about that amazing run in the stock of J.P. Morgan? It's up another three bucks today. It is hard to believe that such a high-quality stock still sells for less than 12 times earnings with a yield of nearly 3%. But it's true. See, that's what happens when you report spectacular earnings. The stock of J.P. Morgan, it's ridiculously cheap. You can't have a real bank rally without this one. It's the best of the best. That's why the stock's fabulous move today was a locomotive that pulled Citigroup. It pulled Bank of America. And it pulled Morgan Stanley along with it. All aboard. All aboard. Once again, if you were taking the professional pessimist seriously, you never would have been able to capture this move. No way, no how. We've seen so many big-time money managers, hedge funds, they come on our air. And they say it is the end of the world. There's just forget about it. Hey, by the way, they're really rich. And maybe you're not. They've made the money. They don't want you to have it. Or at least that's what it seems like to me. You know, it's, uh, they think that the financials are the epicenter of the soon to self-destruct market, at least until they started reporting last week. Now, it didn't matter that they have consistent mid-single digit growth. You know, they call this MSD on Wall Street. It's really bugging the heck. Can't they just say the words? Is it harder to say mid-single digit than it is to say MSD? No. Anyway, it didn't matter that they all have bountiful buybacks and dividends. And it didn't matter that the consumer's in amazing shape. The macro guys don't care about this stuff. They only care about the yield curve. And, and that's why they got it all wrong. Not that they'll ever tell you that. It's why they've missed out on this terrific bank rally. Oh, memo to these masters of the universe, or at least the macro universe. I feel like a linebacker here. Unless you do some homework, stay the heck out of my zone. Same goes for the strength in the stock of American Express. A lot of times I like to read a company's conference call without knowing where its stock might be trading. It's a great discipline because it prevents you from following the herd. When American Express reported, I thought the conference call was, was solid. It was a good growth, a tremendous millennial pickup. It was one of those quarters that told me American Express, under the leadership of new CEO Stephen Squeery, has become a must-own financial tech. You either own it or you own Visa or you own MasterCard. Uh, by the way, Visa and MasterCard uh, both report uh, next week. Uh, sure enough, after initial dip, American Express is now roaring. Closing at two dollars and twenty nine cents, or a dollar nine, a one point nine six percent. Again, a big company, just two percent, just like that. Then there's Honeywell, H O N. If you told me there's a company that's levered to aerospace, climate controls, automation, chemicals, I'd say those are exactly the businesses you don't want exposure to, particularly at this point in the cycle. Yet, Honeywell's in fantastic shape. Last week, CEO Darius Adamczyk, now he's Dave Cody's uh, successor, he put on a clinic when he explained how his business is strong worldwide, including China. While the growth in aerospace was downright phenomenal, Honeywell's firing on all cylinders here. Oddly, the only weak business was in warehouse automation. The market accepted it because that division was up against some really tough comparisons. Honeywell's stock on fire. Jumped $3.37 or 2%. Talk about pin action. All throughout the complex. Finally, there's Union Pacific. Everyone thought Union Pacific was this. Wrong. It was this. All aboard. I know some people viewed this quarter as a disappointment. <laughs> as they had so much weakness across so many different cargoes. And I'll give them that. But look, I think exactly the opposite. Exactly. Despite the revenue shortfall, Union Pacific generated some fantastic earnings. If they can make this kind of profit when business is this bad, can you imagine how much money they'll make when it's good? 
What happens if we get a trade deal with China or Congress signs up on, on NAFTA update, whatever they're calling it now? Uh, what if the Fed keeps cutting rates? That would produce some extraordinary returns here. No wonder Union Pacific's been the leading the transports since it, it, it rallied last week. It's picked up just five, another five points, 3.45% just today. Listen, this afternoon, I had the privilege of being on Scott Wapner's fabulous halftime show. What? Can you get it? I mean, you should watch it. It's really thoughtful. We had a spirited discussion led by my good friend Josh Brown. He pointed out the stocks have been able to rally despite all sorts of obstacles, yet the pessimism is still its unrelenting. I suggest that perhaps the macro people have too much sway, as they seem oblivious to actual investing. They're indifferent to what's happening in individual companies. I think some of it is sheer intellectual laziness. They don't want to do the homework. Hey, listen, maybe they're Jim. Maybe they're watching a lot of Netflix. I don't know. It's easy just to spout off about the big picture stuff like the yield curve because it doesn't change that much. You can pretty much say the same thing every day unless there's like some, you know, a couple of points. Some of it's because the concept of trying to make money in stocks seems to elude them. And some of it is motivated reasoning. They hate Donald Trump so much that they can't bring themselves to believe this has been a pretty terrific period for the stock market economy. But at the end of the day, you can't afford to take your cue from people who don't want to do their homework. The bottom line, we're getting some tremendous positive pin action here with some very important companies putting up excellent results, and it's reverberating. Yes, their stocks were higher and drag whole groups with them, as we've seen, even though I've never bowled higher than a 143. i got to tell you, it's pretty encouraging. Now, let's see if the parade starts tomorrow, marches to the same positive Music. Why don't we go to Rich in Pennsylvania? Rich! Mr. Kramer, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. How about you? Good, good. I am a young investor, and uh, my question is about Spirit Airlines. They're not um, involved with the Max, and the airline seems like they're reporting good earnings. I want to get your take for my portfolio. Right. Well, I mean, look, we, we have UAL reporting really unbelievable numbers with Oscar Munoz. Munoz, he just reported a terrific quarter. Uh, Gary Kelly, by the way, a lot of people are saying don't buy Southwest here. Uh, they're going to report later to you, maybe after they report, but both of those are better in spirit. How about Catherine in Connecticut? Catherine. Yes. Catherine, you're up. It's Kramer. Hi, Kramer. How you Since doing? January, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thank you. Since January, I both bought and sold Cronus between nine and twenty-two overall, earning about three um, percent. Good. After all, after a lot of work, um, yeah. I'm not holding any now. Um, and after hours last Wednesday, when I watched the price paid surge up by as much as forty percent into the twelves from the eights, I wanted to eat my hat as I had just unloaded the mm-hmm. last I had at nine point three. Um, given nice. the quick turner. Turnaround plunge back down. You know, I was happy that I followed my instincts and didn't jump back in. I almost did. But so now my question is, is the newly crowned so-called king of the north a buy in the oh, eighth, I, or should I hold out to, for it to dip back into the sevens? Or what Catherine, do I don't know. I mean, look, you've done the right. You made some money here. I mean, congratulations. Most people have lost. The problem with Kronos is the vape thing. Now, I know when we had the CEO, he told us not to worry. But you know what? It's guilt by association. Uh, and there's also the Pod X. These are the ETFs that just crush these stocks, including GW Pharma. It would really help more if Canopy picked a guy, a, a woman, guy or gal. You can't use gal anymore, I think, right? Regina, my executive producer, guy or woman. No, gal's out. Gal is out. Gal is out. But you get, uh, you get a person. There you go. You get a person. How about that? Who knows the packaged goods industry? Wow. You could see some perfect pin action there. 
All right, some stocks are more powerful than others, and boy, oh boy, are they causing positive pin action. I always use the name Beethoven when I bowl. You know, you get to name your name, right? I always like to be somebody else when I bowl. All right, oh man, extraneous, but why not? Oh man, money tonight. With so many unknowns trying to gauge what's next for this market, I'm going off the charts to see what the technicals could be signaling. And by the way, they're not signaling any positive. Hey, then we've seen some troubling indicators in the manufacturing front recently. I'm highlighting one of the few industrials that seems to be working in this market. Do not miss my take on something blank soul. And last week's biggest IPO didn't take place on its average, and it took place on StockX's website. I'm getting to the bottom of it with the company's CEO, and he may be better than the greatest of all time. Stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. In unprecedented times, access to the right information can help you make better informed investing decisions. That's why TD Ameritrade is committed to providing a range of relevant educational content, like timely articles, informative webcasts, and access to daily live market news, so you can stay on the path to becoming a smarter investor. Learn more at tdameritrade.com slash market hub. TD Ameritrade, where smart investors get smarter. What makes this market so hard to like? On the one hand, many of the problems we've been holding us back, in some cases for years, are starting to resolve themselves, right? I mean, the U.K. just kicked the can down the road again on Brexit, but maybe there's a resolution. The trade war with China is cooling, at least for the moment. The Fed's given us a much-needed rate cut. The job market's still strong. And so far, this earnings season is looking, I think, pretty darn well. I, let's say maybe it's looking not as bad as feared NABF. You'd think that that would give us a pretty positive backdrop. But for every hurdle we overcome, there's a new one standing in front of us. As I mentioned at the top of the show, the stock market has been flooded with new supply thanks to all these IPOs. Like any other market, when supply overwhelms demand, it puts pressure on prices. On top of that, we have a tremendous amount of political uncertainty from impeachment to the 2020 election. And Wall Street hates uncertainty. We had a boatload of it. For weeks now, many investors have been freaking out about Senator Elizabeth Warren's new status as a Democratic frontrunner. She's the candidate who wants to crack down on the perceived excesses of big business. The stock market represents big business. It's easy to understand why money managers are worried. However, you, look, no matter how you feel about President Trump, Wall Street likes his economic policies, aside from the trade war. So for the next year, it wouldn't surprise me if the averages bounce back and forth, back and forth in response to the polling. I know that's a suboptimal situation. It's the last thing we want to worry about. It's Washington. We're trying to figure out companies. But this stuff is kind of nebulous. And it's very hard to look at with the kind of clinical detachment that you need to be a good investor. That's why tonight we do something different. We're going to go off the charts on a Monday with the help of Carly Garner. She's a brilliant technician. She's also the co-founder of the Carly Trading and the author of Higher Probability Commodity Trading to get a more quantitative, more empirical read on this market. Now, Garner points out that the S&P 500 hasn't made much progress since it peaked last year. 
After rocketing higher from late 2016 through early 2018, the market spent most of the last couple of years digesting those gains and no more. Lately, though, the S&P surged to new highs and garners concerned. This is quite contrary of what I'm hearing, that we may be approaching a point where all the good news is baked in. More importantly, she thinks we're about to encounter some serious technical resistance here. When you pair that with the glut of new stock from the IPO deluge, which I've told you is not done, like she said, Peloton today, even though it's recommended by everybody, and the political headwinds, well, she sees a, let's say, not so pretty picture. Let's take a look. Why does she expect resistance? Take, this is a look at a very difficult uh, concept, but we're going to try to walk through it. This is uh, the weekly chart of the CBOE volatility index, the VIX for short, which is also known as the fear gauge, because it tends to do a good job of capturing the overall level of terror in the market. Technically, the VIX measures the volatility premium people are paying for S&P 500 options. It tends to go down when investors are complacent, and it goes up when they are afraid. See this? Is, you could argue, as a measure of complacency. Lately, the VIX has been pummeled. Uh, uh, but when, uh, Gar- what Garner likes in this chart is the Commodity Futures uh, Trading Commission's Weekly Commitments of Traders Report. That's the COT, okay? Which tells you uh, what certain types of investors are doing with the VIX futures. What we care about here is the large speculator category, money managers, because it can give us some insight into when a trade may be a too many right or it may be too Crowding, keep that thought in your mind. Right now, the VIX future speculations are net short by about 155,000 contracts, not far from what Garner would consider to be an overheated short trade at around 1,700, uh, 170,000 contracts. See, 170,000, we'll put it up here, okay? I'm going to keep all these. These are all important, so I, I don't want to. I know there's too much here, but this is really important because, why, well, why does it matter? Because in the past, both the uh, VIX and the S&P 500 have a habit of reversing One speculators start shorting the VIX futures too heavily. When the VIX spikes, the S&P tends to get crushed. All right, so uh, you can see that, in other words, if this were to go back up, then the S&P would go like that, all right? Now, well, how about the S&P 500 itself? Take a look at this longer-term monthly chart of the S&P 500 December E-mini futures. That's a key contract everybody watches who trades the futures. In the short run, Garner thinks bullish seasonal patterns and optimism should be able to carry us higher. But if we rally much further from here, the relative strength index, and that's down here, RSI, okay, uh, that's an important momentum indicator, will shift into overbought territory, suggesting that we'll be due for a pullback. Right now, the SP is just above 3,000. Okay, so keep this mind in mind. This is where it is, all right? Garner's is expecting a ceiling resistance at 3030 or 3150. This is the appropriate ceiling. Uh, anywhere somewhere in between, maybe. Her focus is on the 3,060 to 3,090 area. It's possible we get there, uh, get a short squeeze here, okay? A kind of bull trap move that tricks you into thinking everything's okay. That's what some people thought was happening today. If that ceiling holds, Garner says you want to be prepared for a sell-off, possibly for a severe one. So in other words, if we can't take this out, she wouldn't be surprised if we get a pullback down to the S&P's long-term floor, okay, of the 2,500s. Get this. It'd be a hideous move, but it wouldn't negate the bull market. However, if the S&P breaks below the long-term, well, the Garner thinks a plunge under 2,000. Under 2,000 could be a real possibility. 
At the moment, though, she still considers that a pretty low probability outcome. So she thinks it goes to here, but if, it don't, it doesn't, if that doesn't hold, then she thinks it can go to here. That's a big decline. Then there's the monthly chart of the NASDAQ 100 of the tech-heavy index, made up of the 100 largest non-financial companies in the NASDAQ composite. At this point, the NASDAQ 100 has hit some pretty lofty levels. We're all the way up here, okay? Right now, the NDX is about 66 points away from 88,000, and Garner sees extreme resistance, the 8,100 level. What? I'm sorry, 8,180 levels her resistance. Uh, but just like with the S&P, Garner believes there's a chance for a temporary probe above resistance that may lure in buyers. If that happens, 82.40 becomes the uh, ceiling. So in other words, we get some momentum players come in, uh, not the kind of buyers you want. Also, just like the S&P, the NASDAQ 100 is not yet excessively overbought, and that's down here, uh, according to the relative strength index. However, if it keeps climbing, we'll soon reach overbought territory. And then Garner expects this thing to roll over and roll over badly. How terribly could we be hit? In the normal ebb and flow of the market, she thinks we find a support uh, at 6930 down here. Uh, but that's down about 1,000 points from, from where we are. But it wouldn't shock her if we got a more serious correction that takes us down to the floor at 5910, 5,910. Well, this is, a, ladies and gentlemen, this is a 25% decline. Is Garner right? Honestly, I do not subscribe to her negativity. But you need to be aware that these bearish scenarios are on the table in a lot of people's heads. Here's the bottom line. The charts as interpreted by Carly Garner suggest that the averages could keep climbing for the next few weeks. But after that, she thinks we're in real trouble. And she recommends using any of the strength we're about to get to ring the register. My view, look, it never hurts to be a little cautious as we keep climbing. I think there's more to the bull market than Garner gives it credit for. Still, we need her perspective. She's been right on a lot of things. Because now things do start rolling over, you'll understand what the tech will say about the possible downside in front of us. Stick with Kramer. This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. Investing isn't one size fits all. Every investor has a unique style. That's why TD Ameritrade offers two different mobile apps. There's TD Ameritrade Mobile, which lets you manage your portfolio with streamlined simplicity. Or Thinkorswim Mobile, which gives you tools you need for more advanced trades and in-depth analysis. Visit tdameritrade.com apps to find the one that's right for you. Once again, that's tdameritrade.com apps. Hey, this week, this week, we get results from a bunch of major industrials. United Technologies, Caterpillar, Stanley Black & Decker, Illinois Toolworks, just to name a few. I'm optimistic about some of these stories, especially United Technologies. But for the most part, Wall Street's expectations are incredibly low. See, the industrials, they've been hammered as investors fret about that worldwide economic slowdown and the trade war. These are all things that are so negative for earnings. But I've got an exception. Or an exceptional one, though. Last Thursday, we got a terrific beat and raised a quarter from a company I don't talk about at all, a company called Dover, all right? It's a classic smokestack stock. It's just exactly the kind of dirty industrial you expect to be really struggling here. Yet Dover caught fire with the stock up 46% for the year. 40, 
That's extraordinary. So how is it even possible? And more importantly, can it keep climbing? Okay, this company is a manufacturer's manufacturer. Dover gets 40% of its sales from its fluid handling division. Think pumps, compressors, and bearing systems that are used by industrials, oil companies, chemical companies, and gas stations, and even the food and farm industry. They get another 40% of their sales from engineered systems, where Dover makes critical equipment, consumables, and components for all sorts of industries, consumer goods, digital textile printing, vehicle service, environmental solutions, industrial automation, defense, telco, you name it. Finally, the last 20 comes from refrigeration and food equipment, which includes equipment for everything from commercial refrigeration to heating and cooling to food and beverage packaging and exhaust me to say it all. In short, though, Dover's a textbook example of a smokestack stock. Historically, it's the kind of stock that gets crushed during any kind of economic slowdown, even an international one. Given that this company gets 44% of its sales from overseas, they moved aggressively overseas. That's what it should have done. That's where the growth is supposed to be. It's not exactly immune to worldwide weakness. But in the last few years, Dover's moved aggressively to take control of its own destiny rather than just hope for, a, for the strength of the globe. These guys don't want to be just another cyclical enterprise that's totally hostage to the rise and fall of the business cycle. It all started in late uh, 2017, right here. For years, this stock had been obviously an underperformer, held back by its ailing energy business, known as WellSight. They made equipment for the oil and gas industry, so ever since the price of crude peaked in 2014, Dover's energy division became a total dog. In 2016, again in 2017, WellSight sales were down more than 25% year-over-year. Every time I would list in one of the conference calls, I would say, what the hell? Why don't they just get out of that darn business? Well, by September 2017, management had enough. They threw in the towel. They announced a strategic review. And a few months later, they decided to amputate the energy business via a tax-free spinoff. Dover and Wellsite borrowed hundreds of millions of dollars to pay their shareholders a big, fat, special dividend. Then spun it off as a new company called Apergy in April of last year. At that point, they washed their hands of the whole thing. It was a clean break. Dover retained zero ownership interest. Bon voyage, apogee. In retrospect, that was a great decision. The price of oil has been stuck in the 50s because every time it starts getting some lift, what happens? Well, you know, our producers bring on more supply and knock it right back down. And that's why the oil service stocks have been such awful performers until perhaps today when Halbert reported a not hideous number. It was a Naboth. It was a not as bad as fear. Uh, but Apergy's lost roughly a third of its value since the spinoff. Why did Dover make that call? In part, it's because Third Point, the huge activist hedge fund run by the very smart Dan Loeb, took a position in the company and started to push for it. I think Loeb laid much of the groundwork for this turnaround, although he didn't stick around to see it, but bailing on the stock roughly a year ago, right into the market-wide meltdown. In April of last year, Dover's longtime CEO stepped down. Dover brought in Richard Tobin, then the CEO of CNH Industrial. That's a major British manufacturer to replace him. And 13 months ago, Tobin rolled out a huge restructuring program. He called it a right-sizing plan to bolster Dover's margins, improve operations, and build a foundation for future growth. Basically, he wanted to cut costs and narrow the company focus, which includes jettisoning a lot of underperforming businesses. In practice, Tobin has trimmed the portfolio, focusing on areas where Dover has proprietary edge and can't easily be replaced by a cheaper alternative, as well as businesses that can give them recurring revenue growth. We love recurring growth. And man, this guy has delivered. Dover reported a series of strong quarters this year. Execution has been fabulous. Big cost cuts, better management of the company's two core businesses, engineered systems, and fluid handling. However, once we started worrying about a a worldwide slowdown, things seemed to get a little dicey. When Dover reported in July, okay, here we go, 
their sales came in a bit light, even if they still delivered a nice earnings beat. Overall, orders were soft. They were down 2% organically. That freaked a lot of people out, uh, although its fluid handling business stayed strong. Still, management said their engineered systems business was hit by a delay in digital printing orders, and they told us to expect better in the second half. They also raised their, full, their low end of their full-year earnings forecast. Nah, it wasn't enough. Stock got hit, only pulling back to 88 bucks. Uh, it's lows in August as the industrials went out of style with the trade war. China escalated, uh, investors freaked, all that stuff, you know, blah, blah, blah. Fast forward to last month. Dover holds this big investor meeting uh, where they spelled out everything they've done to improve their businesses. Over the past decade, the company's become a smarter, more streamlined business, fewer operating units. They went from 35, who can keep track of that, down to 18. That may still be too many, but much less cyclical and faster organic growth. Management also gave us some ambitious margin expansion targets for their fueling solutions and food retail divisions. Put it all together, and Dover of today is a very different company from the Dover of just even a few years ago. While the stocks uh, uh, shot up, Back to the triple digits in response to this meeting, it pulled back hard earlier this month. By the time Dover reported last Thursday, it was trading at $95. In other words, the stock wasn't burdened by great expectations. Nabith, right? And if they delivered a good quarter, their share price was bound to go higher, and that's exactly what happened. Posted a nine cent earnings beat off a dollar fifty one basis, higher than expected revenues, terrific six percent organic growth. Remember, it was down two before. Plus, as promised, the engineer systems business did indeed turn around, up six percent. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Battlefield Stover's operating margins also increased by 180 basis points. Even better, management once again raised the low end of the full-year forecast. Now they're looking for uh, 582 to 585 per share. And that's why the stock jumped nearly 6% on Thursday and tacked on another couple of points uh, over the past two trading days. Put it all together, and the heavy industrial Dover continues to deliver, even though the macro guys would tell you it shouldn't. Tybus execution, worldwide slowdown doesn't seem to be hurting him, and the stock's not too expensive, 16 times earnings. Can it go higher? Yeah, I think it can. Going to the end of the year, I bet money managers will flock into the few industrial names that are actually working, and one of them will be Dover. As I said at the top, the Honeywell pin action extends to a bunch of industrials. Dover's the same way. Because of the broad range of its businesses, it dominates. Companies, a quiet, solid manufacturer of boring specialty products, the kind of operation you might never even know about unless you're one of their customers, and that's what's working. Bottom line, Dover has transformed itself into a much less cyclical kind of industrial. That's why it's been able to rally in a tougher macroeconomic environment. It's why I think the stock is more upside going forward. It has reinvented itself by self-help. Just the kind of moves we are looking to triumph over a global economic slowdown. Let's go to Michael in my home state of New Jersey. Michael! Booyah, Jim. Booyah, Michael. Listen, China is going to be buying 40 to 50 billion more in agriculture. Should we be buying SMG, some more Scotch Miracle Grow fertilizer? Well, it, um, actually, the problem with that is, is that first, we don't know if they're going to buy it. And second, Scotch Miracle Grow is really more about grass and grass. Uh, which used to be what we called cannabis uh, before cannabis decided it was too, uh, I don't know, tacky to call it grass. Anyway, Wall Street isn't a fan of the industrials right now, but I've spotted a major exception. Other than Honeywell, it's Dover, and that's because it's transformed itself, and I think it can go even higher. Much more bad money ahead. A NASDAQ for sneakerheads? I'm finding out how one e-commerce site is taking aim at the luxury market, then selling off like it's 1999. I'm digging into whether the derailing we're seeing in the NASDAQ right now is comparable to the meltdown of tech stocks in 1999-2000. Here I'm speaking about the cloud-based stocks. How do you handle it? And oil calls rapid-fire tonight's edition of the lightning round. So stay with Kramer. This company is more than just shoes by the share. 
sneakerheads who get more than a kick out of their kicks are making a market that has footwear fans jumping in with both feet. Is the business model of StockX a shoe-in for success? If you want to get a read on the future of retail, you need to check in with these smaller, privately held companies that are revolutionizing the industry. Take StockX, which is a kind of marketplace for things like limited edition sneakers, watches, handbags, streetwear. They got their start helping people selling rare shoes. And since then, they've expanded into a whole bunch of categories. Now, in the last few months, StockX has rolled out yet another category, collectibles. They brought in a new CEO, and just last week, they launched their latest shoe IPO as part of a collaboration with Adidas. StockX shoe IPOs. They're kind of like Dutch auctions. We're going to learn more about them. Don't worry about it. They're a set of numbers of shoes. If you want one, you submit a bid with the shoes going to the highest bidders who all pay the same price. Hey, that's kind of an intriguing idea. So let's dig deeper with Scott Cutler. He's the new CEO of StockX to learn more about his company and how it's changing the industry. Mr. Cutler, welcome to Man Money. Great to be here, Jim. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now, Scott reminded me beforehand that I, we met while you were on the New York Stock Exchange explaining yeah. Alibaba to me. <laughs> at the same time, you've been at eBay. You are kind of Mr. Exchange. So how'd you come to get the job, and what's it like? Well, you know, when this company started... They started with this notion of creating a new commerce marketplace based on the principles of the New York Stock Exchange, StubHub, and eBay, all places where I'd either been CEO or been part of senior <laughs> management. Right. And I, I sent a, a text, a LinkedIn message to Josh Luber, one of the founders. He said, yeah, yeah. hey, Josh, I'm the CEO at StubHub. I'm a sneakerhead. I see what you're doing. I've spent 10 years in the exchange. I know exactly how big this idea is. I'd love to help. And that started a three-year That's how it started? It's you just did it, it through LinkedIn? Yeah, yeah. A day after the they started. I saw the idea and I thought it was just transformational, the combination of all of these things together in this company. And then uh, who would have known a few years later that I would join and, and have the opportunity to run it in partnership with the founders. But it's been, you know, really very cool story. Well, who else would know how to do an <laughs> IPO auction? Tell exactly. us about it. And, and I wanted to be sure I mentioned before that even though it's with Adidas, there are a lot of brands involved. Yeah, you know, so the, the, the concept here is actually pretty simple. So we partnered with a great brand, an innovative brand in Adidas. And you had three unique designers from around the world. And in 10 days, they designed, created, and produced these unique sneakers, uh, three different colorways. And we had an IPO for 300, or 333 pairs of each sneaker. And, and like you said, so this is the first time where an, a, a brand comes direct into the marketplace and allows the consumer to dictate the price that they're willing to pay for these rare, one-of-a-kind sneakers. And people can be off their market and still not get hurt. Let's say a pair, actually, the average is for 200 You can put it in 1000 but you don't have to pay 1000 Well, we had, we had, we had 10,000 bids. And um, 10, how 10, many people bids. know about this stuff? <laughs> well, I mean, we did a lot. Of, we, we launched this uh, last week. It was open for just a couple of days. We had uh, bidders uh, from all around the world. We already have customers from 170 countries, but... 20% of the 10,000 bidders came from outside of the United States. Um, a thousand of those bidders placed bids on all three different, uh, different, different pairs. And when it came down to it, when you, you, you talked about the average clearing price was a little over $200 a- across all three, and 90% of the bidders paid less than what they bid on the, uh, on the sneakers. Extraordinary. Now, you know eBay and StubHub. Are you starting to see... Uh, better price discovery here than you did in eBay? Well, it, this is a totally different model in the sense that, uh, first of all, 
you know, in this in this case for sneakers category, these are always new dead stock items. Right. Um, and so we intermediate that transaction means we stand in the middle. So right, between right. every anonymous buyer and seller, we authenticate that you know, that item. And so it's different than other online marketplaces because we stand in the middle of the transaction. In this case, yes, there are other platforms that do an auction, but not a blind Dutch auction in this format that we are very familiar with in the, you know, in the public markets. And we use this mechanism to provide, you know, to price a traditional, you know, IPO, but here we use it for products and commerce. How is it possible international must be, like eBay, international yeah, to ab- golf? Absolutely. Are people just more comfortable in international? I mean, why do they seem to like it? And that's where the business seems to be going. Well, the, the business internationally is growing unbelievably. Sneakers is a worldwide phenomenon. Right. It's driven by social, but ultimately it's about access. For people in all the countries outside of the United States, having that opportunity uh, to cop a new sneaker. China, just, too? Yeah, China, 10% of our business. Isn't that so Correct. An e-commerce company having direct customers uh, in China. So these are items that you can't get anywhere else, but then they're coming to StockX and we're recognized as a brand that stands for authenticity. And right. so since we authenticate everything that goes through the platform, if you're buying from you know anywhere in the world, you know that you're getting a great brand plus this notion of authenticity. Oh, that's fantastic. Then no one else has that, which means brings me to a point that the people at home are saying, you know what, I want to be on StockX, but I also want a piece of StockX. I mean, <laughs> is it reasonable to think, and I know Dan, a great man, is behind it, yeah. that, that uh, you would want to come public? Or is it like uh, the mortgage operation where I don't think there's any uh, desire to go public? Well, if you see, we, we recently announced a financing at the beginning of the right. summer. We raised over $100 million dollars. Uh, we have world-class investors, including Dan, that are in this, and I think wouldn't that be great if we if we ended up with that with that outcome? That's certainly our objective as a company. Fantastic. But we're going after a global opportunity with consumers around the world, and we're super excited about this innovation in commerce. Well, you should be. This is exciting. They got the right guy for it. <laughs> you know it all. All right, that's Scott Cutler, CEO of StockX. Guys, go read about Google it. I really want you to know about this. I know it's private, so you can't take a position, but this is one of the most exciting Exciting parts of commerce I've seen since when eBay was started. Man, money's back after the break. It is time. It's time for the light with What's up, Rocco? One of those. It's and then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Steve? Dad, it's time for the lightning round. It's over with Bill in Pennsylvania. Bill. Jim, I got the uh, the backbone of some of the most popular websites in the world. Uh, third quarter results coming up on November seventh. What do you think about that or Cloudflare? And <laughs> they have really taken they have taken that one to the woodshed. I've got to tell you, I think you're now going to have to start dealing with a lot of tax law selling. I would be careful. I do like the idea, but wow, has it been clobbered? That's not a good sign. Let's go to Rohit in Washington. Rohit. Hey, Jim. Love your show and thank you. And thank you for everything. I wanted to get your thoughts on AMD. It's been oh, I so like far. it. I like what Lisa Sue's doing. A lot of news today saying she's still kicking the butt of Intel. Holy cow. But remember, NVIDIA is also on fire. Let's go to Sharon in California. Sharon. Your show. 
Thank I'm you. I'm turning 75 this week. I've been in the dividend reinvestment plan of Exelon for many years. Good. Having accrued a lot of shares and gains over time. Good for you. Should I stay the course? Yes, absolutely. First, a happy 75th. Uh, look, Exelon's not my fancy old Philly elect and Commonwealth head. I happen to like Dominion right here for 4.5, but I think you stick with what you got. And you're in very good, uh, very good hands, and I like your call. Let's go to Richard in Tennessee. Richard. Hey, Jim, this is Stock Monster Rich from Knoxville, Tennessee. I love ENDP. I want you know. I want to know what you think about it, and I think it's a steal at these levels. Well, uh, you know, I, 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 I can't call it a steal. Um, Let's just say it's a great spec down here at four. I, I, I can't call it a steal because every time you call something a steal, I call it a no-brainer. Next thing that happens is that you got no brain. Let's go to Ashwin in California. Ashwin. Uh, hey, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. I appreciate all your insights. Uh, my symbol is MRK and Merck. Okay, Merck reports October 29th. Here's what you need to know about Merck. Merck will print. There'll be someone who doesn't like it. They'll knock the stock down. And then you'll buy more or they'll get too excited about it and then it'll get knocked down. So the secret is buy half Merck now and half Merck after it starts going down on the day it reports because it will be a good quarter. Let's go to Gunther in Florida. Gunther. Booyah, Mr. Kramer. Booyah, it is Gunther from Palm Harbor in Florida. I have that question. Is Ionis Pharmaceutical a good stock to own in the long run? It's fine. It's a battleground. It's got a lot of short people in the shorts banging it down and taking it up. I have to tell you, I really, I, you know what? I like the Seattle Genetics. That was good news. And the Vertex News, even though it's up a lot, it's not up enough. I like both those better. Let's go to Andrew in South Carolina. Andrew. Andrew. I had his phone number. He didn't answer. I left him a voicemail. Then I called. I looked up. Well, that's a okay. little confusing to me. What's the stock? Hey, I'm looking into it. Hey, Booyah. Just wanted to get a shout out and see what you think about Tandem Diabetics. I like Tandem Diabetics. It's done absolutely nothing since they recommended it. It seems to want to do nothing. I don't care. I like the stock. I also, by the way, you know, I, I like Dexmed. I like Medtronic, which is down a lot. And that, ladies and gentlemen, of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. It finally happened. I hardly noticed. All year I've been warning you that the flood of new IPOs would eventually derail many of those turbocharged growth stocks in the NASDAQ that we like so much. If you want to participate in a deal, you need to sell something, though. You had to sell something else. And lately, money managers have been selling the software as a service place. And I think cloud-related has been slammed. I'm blaming the IPO market. When this year began, I was worried it would end up looking like the end of the dot-com era. Back in 2000, we had two markets. The Nasdaq Composites, which was filled with pretenders like Infospace and eToys and WorldCom and Global Crossing. And then there was the real market made up of the Coca-Colas and the Mercs. From 1999 to 2000, more than 350 companies came public, flooding the market with endless amounts of stock, both from the IPOs and from their secondary offerings. There was too much new supply and only overwhelmed demand. Then the whole dot-com edifice came crashing down. Even the good ones, by the way, uh, they all got eviscerated. And then Wall Street soured on things tech and rotated back to the Cokes and the Pepsis, the high-quality companies with consistent earnings and good dividends and buybacks. Only a half dozen companies really survived. Now, we're seeing something similar. 
The cloud stocks are being clubbed, though fortunately there aren't that many of them, at least not compared to the dot-com period. And some of the cloud names are even profitable. But it doesn't matter. Money's flowing back to consistent companies with healthy dividends as long as they don't have too much China exposure. That's what we've been seeing in the Dow. Once again, the new supply from IPOs has overwhelmed the natural demand from buyers. This happens sooner than I thought because there's a lot less demand for individual stocks than there used to be. These days, indexing has become the default way most people invest. Almost 60% of the money in the stock market comes via the indices. And the indices aren't allowed, per se, to participate in IPOs because they're not in the index. I mean, that's kind of what we don't want to have happen, isn't it? Wow. Plus, many of these junior growth companies like to issue stock as salary, which means there's a constant flood of additional supply. Like, it's like weak shale underneath a skyscraper. It doesn't help that many of the IPOs are unicorns, and soon their lockups will start to expire. Do you know, forget this, Uber's lockup on its insider sales ends in a few weeks. We're going to get with $22 billion worth of the stock. That's four times the current float. Thank you, uh, Larry McDonald, for uh, Bear Traps for putting those, that work together. And Uber's hardly alone, alone here. You put it all together, and this situation is just too darn similar to the dot-com unraveling. We don't want this, but it is. It's almost like the, the stock market's equivalent of Gresham's Law. Bad money's driving out the good. In this case, the weakness from unprofitable, newly public companies bleeds into the profitable but expensive cloud names. Did you see the way Peloton acted today? There were five firms that told you to buy it. Yeah, uh, these one, hot, one red-hot group of cloud stocks is really plummeting to earth. Oh, and the software outlook from Workday last week took everybody by surprise. So what do you do? If you don't own any of the cloud stocks, I think you've got to let them settle. If you do own the higher quality cloud plays that are being brought down with the bad ones, you have my permission to picket them into weakness. But please be mindful that the whole group is under pressure and could have a potentially lot more downside. I wish I could offer more reassurance, but the vast supply of new stock just snuck up on us, and it's causing the whole group to get hit. These IPOs are a tsunami, and it's just not worth trying to fight it. Better to get out of the way. Oh, the only piece of good news? At least we weren't annihilated by WeWork. The damage was cordoned to the so-called professionals who got their lungs ripped out by an overly dynamic entrepreneur with a terrific story and a real bad balance sheet. Stick with Kramer. Speaking of Naboth, guess what? Ameritrade reported tonight, and again, it was not as bad as people feared, and the stock roared. That remains the operable theme of this quarter, other than the industrials who help themselves. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise I'll try to find it just for you, right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow! CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.